This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Your host, Carl Valeri, has over a decade of experience counseling pilots. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here is your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to the Inspirational, Informational, and Transparent Aviation Careers Podcast. My name is Carl Valeri, and I'm joined by Justin Ash today, a special guest who's been on uh, quite a bit to talk a little bit about finance and flight training, because that's what he does. But before we get to Justin and, and start the podcast, a couple of announcements. First of all, of course, you know the uh, Aerospace Scholarships Guide. Uh, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com. Here's a new updated version. Uh, and if you've already signed up for it, you get those updates automatically. You just have to go on and re-download or take a look at it online. Don't forget, there's also a lot of different courses at aviationcareerspodcast.com slash courses. You can find that scholarships guide, also career coaching, and the Pilot Jobs Book. We also have a monthly membership that includes the Pilot Jobs Book, the Advanced Guide to Holding Pattern, the Practical Guide to Winter Flying, and various webinars. So just to find out more about some of those technical courses and all the different webinars, go to aviationcareerspodcast.com, click on Courses. Normally, each course has a free trial on the first lesson so at least try the free trials and sign up and check out uh, the information that's there it's very helpful well i know uh in the last couple of episodes i've gotten some feedback on a couple things as far as uh funding your flight training and also being a flight instructor etc so as you know justin ash is both somebody who's a certified financial planner but also a flight instructor with a major airline and uh, really interesting uh, that he does both of those things remember i talked about the fact that we can do many things because we have so many days off and it's awesome uh, and he is one person that personifies that well anyway let's get to justin justin uh, welcome to the podcast and where are you calling from where are we calling you from and we're on skype I don't know where you are. Thanks for having me back, Carl. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm here at home in Orlando. So I just uh, sitting at home in Orlando in the office, you know, a little bit of work done today, joining you for this. So. Cool. Awesome. So uh, Orlando actually is somewhat of a new destination for you. So that's pretty cool that uh, you've actually moved a little bit closer to where you're working, the training center. We're going to talk a little bit about that later on in the podcast. But uh, oh, and one more thing, if you have questions for Justin or myself, don't forget feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. You know, I wish I could get back to everybody personally, but uh, we have a couple of people on the team that actually read feedback at Aviation Careers Podcast. You'll notice that uh, they'll get back to you right away and I'll try to answer you directly. Otherwise, we will answer your questions on here. Of course, we're going to de-identify the information and we're going to try to leave out a lot of the different things like locationally, but we definitely want to get your question answered here or in a coaching session, but here online is great because it helps all the other people that are listening to this podcast. So anyway, uh, with that said, let's talk a little bit about something that came up in one of the last episodes and, and I'm getting a lot of feedback from is talking about your retirement savings for funding of flight training. My uh, To reiterate my position, I think that's your, your last resort is to use your your retirement savings for many reasons. We went over the fact that, you know, it's not compounding interest. It's not uh, growing, in other words, in that account. And it usually grows tax-free. And there's a lot of implications if you pull something out of a tax-free account. And uh, you can find out all sorts of information about that online. So when you do that, a little planning ahead of time, is it worth it? It might be in your case. 
It's on a case-by-case basis. But again, I, I'm at the position that should be your, your last resort. So Justin being a certified financial planner, obviously, uh, you know, as a disclaimer, he, this is just general information. You should always, always talk to your financial planner uh, to find out what's best for you in this situation. But Justin, what in general, uh, as far as looking at pulling from your retirement savings uh, for flight training, what, what is your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Carl. I think that uh, first off, each person's situation is very unique to them, and you have to talk to uh, the financial person in your life that that can help uh, you make that decision. But at the end of the day, you know, when you look at retirements, especially you look at IRAs, which are the individual retirement accounts that most people have set up, whether it's a four hundred one k, Roth, or whatever that may be. Uh, at the end of the day. You know, those are your primary vessel for saving for retirement and the amount of uh, money that you take out, as you kind of touched on, you deplete the compounding interest potential, you deplete the growth potential by doing that. And you have a lot of penalties that can be incurred. Most plans, not all of them, they do vary, but you'll see most of them have about a five year payback if you take a loan. However, if you don't repay pay back in that five years, um, then you're going to incur penalties because that's going to be taxed as income and then you're going to take on additional penalties to that. And also, if you do pay it back, you're paying the interest on the loan and you're also paying that back at post-tax money, which a lot of people don't realize. And then you're going to get taxed on that again when it comes out. So you're essentially taking a loan out to get double taxed on it. Uh, in some cases as well. So there's just so many things that go into that, so many reasons not. And and another huge reason is, uh, as most people have read and most people that have children, you know, they'll read or their financial planner will tell them, hey, you know, we don't uh, we don't take money out of our IRA for, you know, our kids' weddings and for their college and things of that nature. Right. And it's the same idea. You, You can take out loans for education Uh, including flight training, but you can't take it out for retirement. And so when you get there, there is no loan available for that. So touching that is, you know, if you can avoid it, I would agree with you, Carl. It's strongly, uh, not strongly advised. So with that said, there is somebody that made a great point online uh, concerning this, and I get it. Uh, His situation, yes, it did work out well because he was stuck. It wasn't a lot of money. And I think another thing you have to look at is how much of your retirement you're taking out. If you're pulling like a half a percentage point out of your retirement fund or 1%, that's not as big of a deal as if you're pulling out 50 to maybe 100% of your retirement funds. So so it is kind of, you look at it that way. And if it's something that's a really small amount, yeah. But when you start talking big numbers, no. So again, it all is very specific, just like you said. We, you really have to talk to a financial planner about that. So highly recommend you not doing it. But again, the last resort, uh, yeah, you can pull it out of there. I like to tell people to pull it out of your savings fund, which is a little different, or get loans. And that's uh, something that we've talked about in the environment of education and something that's going to make you move forward in your career, in your life, where you can actually make more money. Having a loan is not a bad thing. Now, I know in the media that a lot of people are saying how bad it is to get loans for college, etc. 
I think what's happening is a lot of times we see people getting degrees that that really are not giving them back the money that they put in. And many reasons is that they're not getting a license or they're not getting a specific degree for a specific field. And sometimes it's like a general field, it's in history or whatever. And whereas in the flight training, you know pretty much what you're going to make when you get out. Uh, there's obviously different results for different people, but you really know it's all online, how much a pilot makes, how much an airline pilot makes, how much a dispatcher makes, some a flight attendant, etc. So you know that this is going to pay off in a certain period of time, whereas in some of these other instances it doesn't. And I think that's one thing, too, is we don't – a lot of times we don't push towards these, these technical and these other fields – that are, are more hands-on, you know, and, and that's something we really need to do. Vocational training is so important. Being a pilot is very much similar to vocational training. And something, another thing I'd like to make the point of, because this is coming up right now because everybody's registering for college, and, uh, you know, I've been going through the registration process here at Polk State College, obviously, that I'm affiliated with, but there's the classes, <clears throat> and then there's your flight training. The flight training gets you a license, to fly an airplane, get you a pilot certificate. What Justin does over at the training center where he is, gets you a certificate to fly a specific airplane. When you finish that getting that certificate and you take a check ride, you have a license to fly that specific plane. You are going to go and get money for flying that plane right away. Very, very specific. And it's also, it's not easy, but then again, a lot of times if, if it was easy and we could replace people quickly in these specific fields, we probably wouldn't make as much. So uh, that's, it's kind of interesting that we, we don't realize that I think most of the time happens every year. It's happening right now. If you're somebody who's new to aviation and you're listening to this or a parent, uh, you know, a loved one of somebody thinking of going into aviation, Yes, there's the degree portion, but there's also the pilot certificate portion. Those are two separate things. You need the degree to become competitive with an airline. You need the pilot certificate to actually fly the specific airline. Good example is a plumber can not have a license in lots of degrees. He's not going to be able to start a plumbing business, right? He can work as you know an ad. Excuse me, as somebody who's new to plumbing, but he actually can't work in the field till he has a license. Uh, so that's kind of important to realize. Same thing with flight training and being an electrician or a mechanic. You actually have to work underneath a mechanic until you have your license. And then you become a mechanic, you can work on your own. They're all very similar. So I just kind of want to make that point because, again, this this comes up as a question very often right now, people registering for classes. So anyway, uh, moving on. And, and Justin, is there anything else you want to add to that retirement before we move on to the rest of the questions that we have on on fatigue and training? No, I, I think we touched on it. The only thing I would add to that is I agree with what you said earlier uh, to piggyback off of that is the amount is very important, but coupled with the amount is also a payment, a payback plan. And so many times some people will take money out and maybe not have a defined payback plan. If you have a defined payback plan or you know you're taking the money out and in six months or a year, you're going to come into enough money to repay that right away, then it's not nearly, um, can be, can be justified or not nearly uh, as bad if you do it that way. But having the repayment plan is, is very important because if you go past that threshold and start to incur the taxes and the penalties, that's when it really starts to erode the wealth within the IRA. 
That's a great point. I'm glad you, you brought that back is having that plan. And, and, you know, obviously we always talk about having a plan moving forward with your career. Uh, and that's also part of the plan, the financial planning. So great point. Let's move on to some of the other points that we have here. And uh, we again, this is going back to the, the flying fatigue, the conversation we had in, in a prior episode. And that was with Robert Geyer. And we had this discussion about fatigue in your career. One of the things I think we we didn't really stress enough, and I think having Justin on this is going to help, is you, the pilot, and the fatigue that you might experience in the training environment. Quite important uh, to really understand how to mitigate fatigue and also mitigate some of the things that come from that. And uh, before I, you know, because obviously Justin sees a lot of students and have has experience, you know, watching them uh, deal with their fatigue, just from a personal uh, perspective, my perspective, I find that uh, the one thing that I can do to mitigate this, this fatigue during the training environment, because usually training environments, boy, oh boy, you're working so hard and so fast, and it's coming at you so fast that if I can just be there and prepared prior to getting to training, like if they send me something to memorize, uh, memory items, and also anything that I can read, and any type of you know flows or call-outs or anything like that that I can get ready for beforehand, that's going to lead to less fatigue because I'm going to spend less time outside the classroom having to catch up to study. And I'll tell you one story. I went to an airline. I got, I've been to a lot of different airlines because I've been bounced around a lot because of 9-11. And I got a little bit cocky uh, because I was like, oh, heck, I can do this. I've done this before. I showed up and didn't have my memory items and my flows and call-outs all memorized before I got there. And that was incredibly stressful. It's probably one of the few times that I got sick during training, and that's because of the lack of sleep and also stress. I don't know all the specific as to why, but I do know that during a stressful time and lack of sleep, many people get sick. And I'd love to hear from Justin. I'm sure you've seen a few people under quite a bit of stress and probably a high rate of, of sickness too. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, Carl, I mean, it's, it's about managing it. It's kind of like flying on the line. Uh, but yeah, we'll see guys come in and, you know, they'll, they'll just be worn out, you know, because they were trying to pull an all nighter study in or, you know, whatever. And it's also managing everything that's going on too. It's not just your studying. I mean, you know, as well as I do, you know, Carl, when you get into the training environment, especially at the 121 or airline world, um, you know, it's, it's also you have this big class of people and you want to go hang out, you want to have dinner, you want to do all these different things. And so managing the studying with the sim time, the classroom time, and then also the social time, squeezing the right amount of sleep in there and all that and being prepared is what does it because you'll find too it dinner or where when you're hanging out with your colleagues and your classmates that uh, you're talking a lot about the material and if you already understand it have a decent idea of what's going on that helps build your knowledge as well so so in in your experience with the students that have, have had some fatigue issues i mean um what happens like it, legitimately hey you got a student and they are just wiped out they're, they're they're useless i mean sometimes they just can't get even get in the simulator and i'm, I'm sure you have some stories there what do you do in that case? Well, usually, usually you see it right away. You know, they, they come in and you can see they're just a little tired. Uh, maybe they're carrying a, a 
two coffees instead of one that day. <laughs> and, um, you know, you just kind of ask him, you know, and, and you start talking to him. And a lot of times the instructors, most of the training environments I've been in and am currently in, they try to pair the instructors up at least for a couple lessons in a row with the students. So you kind of get an idea, too, of where they're at in their progression. And they might just be a little behind the eight ball. You know, the trouble is in a classroom or in a, you know, environment like that, you can slow things down. You know, you can kind of take a little bit longer. But once you get into the sim and you've got a jet that's going, you know, 200 miles an hour and things have got to happen at a certain pace, if you're slow, worn down, it may not even be that you don't know the information. You're just not, you're becoming task saturated because you're not functioning at that same speed or level that you normally would have just simply from mental fatigue. So, and that's where I would say I see it the most is in the sim. Once you get in, if they, even if they're well prepared, if they're tired, you just see that lag. Almost like jet lag. <laughs> yeah, gosh, and that's good. As an instructor, you you notice that and you, you point that out, and and uh, you prevent them from going forward. Or you, you you slow the pace. I think that's that's a really good thing. But it's, sometimes it's hard to recognize it. That's for sure. But I think just in general, we talked about the you know trying to mitigate fatigue by just being prepared. I know this is tough, but get some sleep. It really, really is. But uh, anyway, great discussion about uh, challenges of fatigues that, that we as pilots actually face. And it's kind of simple how to how to mitigate that and also raise your hand. Hey, I've got fatigue. But how about uh, we do have some discussion from people, you know, writing in that are interested in becoming uh, some an instructor, an actual instructor. So let's shift to that. And you are an instructor. How about you as a sim instructor? Maybe you can give us an idea of your schedule and possibly what could lead to you as the instructor becoming fatigued. Yeah, as, a, as an instructor, you become it's. Just, actually easier than you would think to become fatigued as an instructor is simply due to uh, the change in the environment. Uh, and more for me, what I find for myself is the mental fatigue, you know, because training, you know, most people that work within the training department, it is a commutable job. And we'll touch on that a little bit more later, but most people live in the same place where the training facility is. So they get to go home every night, sleep in their own bed. But training occurs at all hours. You know, so your schedule, one week you might be on days, 5.30 in the morning, and then the next week you might be on nights. And you may be getting good sleep, but you also get the, uh, the mental fatigue of, if I'm working in the mornings, you know, training where I work now, the training facility, if you're doing the morning sessions those are actually the easier sessions generally uh you have um and then the night sessions are usually the more workload intensive for the instructor and those are usually the new hire sim sessions and so there's more mental fatigue there and if you're bouncing back and forth between the two things of that nature um because teaching new hires is, is definitely can be more intense or more demanding on the instructor because there's just more questions. There's more information to get out there versus recurrent. So balancing all that is usually where I find uh, my fatigue sets in mentally is I have to make sure that I'm adjusting each time I go in for what I'm going to be teaching, who I'm going to be teaching and all that um, and doing that. And also as instructors, so, uh, uh, 
one other point is we don't have the same work rules. And what I mean by that is I don't have to have, I can work as an instructor. I can work 14 days in a row. So it's really tempting to block your schedule up where you can do 10 or 14 days in a row. However, as someone who's done that at the end, you're like, I mean, you're just white. You, you know, you just don't even, it's hard to even know what you're teaching anymore. So... You know, it's interesting you said that because I did a, I figure I did a seven days in a row of flying and uh, I was wiped and it looks good on paper, <laughs> but in reality, just like you're talking about 14 days in a row in reality, man, it's tough, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, anyway, the, one of the things too, that as instructors, like you said, is the fatigue. It's interesting. You said that when you have somebody new. Like when I came to the airline I'm at now, I've had, I think I had like about six, 7,000 hours flying a jet. And then you see guys that have never flown a jet. I'm wondering if there is, and I think from what you're saying, there is that all those questions from people that possibly are coming from the turboprop or prop environment, would that be a little bit more fatiguing? And is that the challenge? Yeah, that's, it is. And it's not necessarily turboprops. Uh, you, you see it with all all different types. And I mean, that's one thing that draws me to teaching is the very backgrounds. It's something different every day. Uh, But you're going to have different people coming from different backgrounds, regionals, corporate, military, things of that nature. People maybe been out of flying. You know, we were chatting about this earlier, been out of flying for a number of years and they're just coming back to it. And all of them have different questions, different skill sets. And you as the instructor, you're expected to adjust to all that. You know, military pilot, military guys tend to be very, uh, very much, um, they're in tune with their body. They're in tune with their fatigue. They know what they need to do. They get the rest. They get all those things they need to do. But they also don't have an understanding of the 121 world. And so, you know, I always joke with my military guys, I'm like, the hardest part of this training for you is going to be to get from the gate to the runway. (laughs) <laughs> because flying you can do, but the other part is hard. Whereas a regional guy that's maybe been at SkyWest or something like that for a number of years and understands the gate to runway stuff, that's not as difficult um, or corporate, but they may be coming out of a turboprop. Maybe they, like you said, they're coming out of a regional turboprop. So the actual flying is a little bit more difficult because they're used to going 200 miles an hour in a turboprop versus four or 500 miles an hour in the jet. And so they have a speed adjustment, as I like to call it. Um, and so that that's what puts the instructor fatigue, uh, can cause that instructor fatigue. And then also the changes. I mean, the schoolhouse is always changing. I can tell you the last couple of weeks, Carl, I've been going through all this EET stuff. So to give you an idea of my schedule the last three weeks, <laughs> I was my recurrent last year, um, uh, let's just say it, it got, I needed some, I needed to do it again. It got kind of misscheduled. So I got that dropped on me. So I did that. And then I had to go to the new EET stuff, which is the extended envelope training that the FAA with the new advisory circular is mandating that all the airlines have completed by next year. And so I had to go through all of my instructor stuff for that. Then I had to go back to recurrent to do this year's recurrent cycle for my instructor qualifications and my line qualifications. And then the next week I was right back in the schoolhouse teaching last year's stuff to new hires. So it was, you know, in a three week period, I did four completely different training sets. Um, 
with about a day or two off in between. And by the end of that year, right now I'm on about a five day off period. So I'm just taking a breather. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds pretty fatiguing right there. Having all those different uh, training events, that's four different ones. That's a lot. Uh, It's fun, I guess. Interesting, uh, but also quite challenging. So that's pretty cool. Um, One of the things that's interesting about your job is the fact that uh, you go to a training center. I think you mentioned something in the beginning, and I I really need to reiterate this. You sleep in your own bed every night when you're training, and I think that's uh, that's a big deal to a lot of folks. Uh, People are able to do that on the line, the people actually flying the line. If they do like day trips or turns or out and backs, whatever you want to call them, that means that you go to the airport, you fly somewhere, and you come right back. And those people sleep in their own bed. But as, a, as an instructor, you wind up sleeping in your own bed. Well, I guess if you're not doing the night shift, of course, <laughs> you might be sleeping in your own bed during the day. But, uh, but you're home every day, which is kind of cool. Does that mean, and this is an important question that comes up quite a bit, is do, if I am an instructor, do I have to live near the training center? And I, I think this is a maybe. So that's my guess at, at Justin's answer. So do you need to live near the training center if you're an instructor? You don't have to. Uh, it is a maybe, just like, just like you said. And yeah, I touched on that earlier. The sleeping in your own bed thing—it's a fatigue. It's a fatigue factor for students when they first come in the schoolhouse, sleeping in a hotel every night. Right? We have to adjust to that. We don't get our our meals at home, right? And then the instructors as well—they face the same thing if you try to commute it versus living in base. I've done both. I know you have too, Carl. Commuted and. Commuting is is just a different lifestyle. I know when I commuted to being an instructor, uh, I was more fatigued than I am living in base. And that was simply because I was living more off of the hotel food, the restaurant food. I was sleeping in a hotel at night. And a lot of times you'd be in that hotel for eight or 10 days in a row. So your next door neighbors would change. And one night you'd have somebody that's noisy. The next night you wouldn't. Um, and so definitely, I mean, and that was why ultimately uh, I commuted for almost 12 years. And it was like you had mentioned, introduced, I just moved to Orlando about a month and a half, two months ago. And it has been a life-changing event. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm not tired. I can get up, roll out of bed. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic. Can you do it? Absolutely. Have we done it? We absolutely have. Uh, however, if you have the option, living in basis. Especially, I think it's actually easier to commute to flying than it is to the training house. So, yeah, it that's actually uh, I think a good point. One of the things that I think people don't realize is how much of a difference that makes in your life, and I think that's great that you stress that. Um, you know, I hear it all the time, especially in my coaching. They're like they hear me talking now because I'm actually living in base. And it's been a while since I lived in base, and it is just phenomenal. Just I just drive home. I'm home within, you know, maybe two hours tops if if there's a problem on the highway or something. Uh, but that's much different than taking a day to get home. Or in the case of me, when I was going across country into and living in a remote area, that would take me 24 to 36 hours to get to work, and that's a long, long commute. Uh, it makes your life different. Uh, I could probably never do all the coaching. Oh, I know I could never do all the coaching that I do right now uh, if if I wasn't here in base. And and so that's another thing. You know, the same thing with an instructor. They have to make the same decision. Uh, but uh, commuting to flying is easier, I think, too, because uh, one of the things we didn't talk about, uh, just to make sure people understand, is uh, a lot of times what happens with a f- pilot is that they go to work 
and then they go for four days and they come back. I'm a good example of that. I usually go to work for four to three days. So I drive to Orlando on I-4, which is a real pain, but I only do it once a week. That's much different than driving to work every day. An instructor does go to work every day. When they commute, a lot of times they'll have a crash pad or whatever uh, at the training center, and then they'll commute home. So it's almost like a regular pilot doing that, but they're you know they're in their crash pad as opposed to being home home, meaning uh, where their family is. Uh, so it happens. People do it, and uh, it can be done either way. It's really uh, it's a personal choice. I know a lot of people I talk to that do commute say I don't know any different. So uh, that's you know one of the reasons that I do it. If I ever was in base, I, I probably would never leave the base because of that. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm glad you clarified that. Yes, you can uh, commute to the training center, but yes, it's a, it's a maybe. It's I think it's easier for you, and you obviously are, are enjoying your life much better and have much more time with your family. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's just a different, you know, I never did it. I was one of those guys that I promised myself I wouldn't just move to base for temporary. When I did it, I was going to be able to stay there uh, for a long period of time because I was one of those guys. Exactly. I didn't want to expose myself to how great it was because I had heard how great it was and then have to have it taken away. And so that was why ultimately I ended up making the move and, and living where I live now. Because uh, I think I can stay here permanently, but um, yeah, it's. I mean, and the thing with commuting to the schoolhouse is is exactly that. You live in a hotel room, and you tend to have more downtime. So when you fly the line, um, something else. You know, you go for four days, kind of like you said, Carl. And by the time you commute the front end, commute the back end, and fly in the middle, it's pretty much get up, go to work, fly, go to the hotel, get some rest, maybe read your book for a little bit, go to sleep, get up, and do it again the next day. As an instructor, we have more downtime, you know, each day because we don't instruct for 12 hours a day. Whereas when you fly the line, a lot of times you're in the airport or the airplane for 10 or 12 hours a day. And so you're kind of sitting around a hotel room and not a ton to do if, you you know, you come into logistical issues with having a car to get back and forth to the training facility and the crash pad. Or you, do you live in a crash pad with roommates who, you know, it, it absolutely so for me, I, I think living in base as an instructor is the way to go. But I will tell you, living in base as an instructor, I think trumps living in base as a pilot because I don't have to do four day trips anymore. <laughs> I get to come home every day. So it's yeah, nice. that is cool. That really is. Cool. If you're super senior, by the way, those people obviously I fly with a lot of them. They live in base and uh, they're pilots and they love it. They're out and backers. You know, some airlines are set up that way. Uh, but it is it is a cool thing. Now, with that said, if you live somewhere that you absolutely love, it's the most amazing thing in the world. Yeah, you're going to commute to work. That's for sure. Uh, so that that's uh, again a lifestyle choice that you have to look at. Um, one other, before we get to our last question, another interesting thing about uh, Justin being in base just so happens he's in the same base i'm in and uh this actually doesn't happen very often especially in the podcasting world a lot of people don't realize that we don't i normally don't meet a lot of my co-hosts uh, very rarely do uh justin and i actually saw each other at the airport in orlando and we were passing by and i i was like hey justin i think he took back a second trying to recognize who i was because we don't really see each other so that was that was kind of cool we actually physically got to meet each other that was kind of neat justin yeah it was it it was i it was hilarious because that's exactly what happened i turned i was like i know that guy <laughs> 
have seen his picture somewhere, and then it just dawned on me when you, you know, as soon as you kind of, as soon as you started talking, because I know your voice so well. As soon as you started talking, I was like, ah, that's Carl. But I was like, I'm looking at you, and I'm going, I know that guy. I've seen his picture somewhere. <laughs> This is normally what happens to me at air shows is uh, someone looks at me and say, hey, I know that person. I just don't know who it is. And then I start talking like, hey, wait a minute. I know you because they're used to hearing me, not seeing me. That's for sure. Uh, so I've got the face for radio. But uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's one of the things that's interesting about this whole podcasting world is we do get to connect with so many people. So you could be listening to this and overseas from us. We're here in the U.S. And uh, it's all these things that we talk about are very similar throughout the industry as far as instructors concerned uh we do need to wrap up but there is one very important thing i want to ask justin and um this is happening quite often and i'm seeing and i talk to a lot of recruiters at the different regional airlines i know justin you work for a major and we're seeing uh some challenges and we're going back to the 10 percent to even 15 percent uh, drop rate or a failure rate within the regional airline uh, scenarios as far as training uh, and people coming in and not being able to finish and actually uh, they're actually pausing their training or terminating them and moving on uh, I, I'm getting a lot of folks that I'm helping lately with this and one of the things that's hard to do is just kind of you know stop and say okay what do I need to do going forward? And one of the things you need to do is ask them, uh, the airline that is, what and your instructors, what did I do and what can I do better next time? The majority of the question, or you know, if I get a, a written comment or something from their instructor, sometimes we'll go over that, uh, or a verbal. And the thing that I'm hearing quite often is that, number one, the instrument skills are not there. But another real big one is the glass. So those two things are the big things you need to get ready for. And by glass, uh, I mean you're not using you know the the suction or the vacuum gauges, et cetera. I've been doing a lot of tours at the school, showing people the difference between the airplanes that have just the old instruments and then the G1000. And we have been getting comments for a long time, and we're hearing it over and over is that we really would like people to have more glass experience or you know EHSI EADI and and working with a glass cockpit. So how in the world do you get ready for that? A lot of it's experience. Some people go right into it because they don't know anything else. They started in glass. I know Rick Felty on uh, the Stuck Mike Avcast. He actually is one person that started uh, with uh, glass, which is amazing. Me, I went to glass when I finally got to the airlines. And even at that, not all my instruments were glass. And then when I got onto the jet, uh, the, you know, the last three or four jets I've had flown, they are all glass. Uh, and even corporate jets I've flown. So... One of the things I suggest to people is get in one of those simulators that has the G1000, has all that glass, and get yourself really proficient because usually you're just about there, but you're not quite proficient. So uh, with that said, Justin, is there anything – I know you – and I'd love to hear your experiences with – uh, any issues you're seeing within the training uh, from the people that possibly have to have their training paused or terminated? And uh, do you feel that this is true for on the major airline level? I know on the regional side they're having this problem, but do you also see an issue on the major side? I, you know, I can't speak for the regionals. I know the numbers are there. I don't think our numbers are quite as high. 
because uh, we, you know, I think just simply from the experience level coming in, most people coming into the department have a little more experience. Um, but we are seeing an uptick in it. I will say that. I don't know what the exact percentage is. I wouldn't want to quote it, but I know we're seeing an uptick in it. And the biggest thing in my experience, uh, to try not to get too long-winded, because this is a topic I'm actually very passionate about, is how to come into a 121 training department and set yourself up for uh, success. And I think there are some key things that as an airline, as an industry, we don't talk about enough for our new hires because there's so much information. You're going to hear the same thing I've heard my whole career and you have to. Training is like drinking from a fire hose, right? So how do we mitigate that? First, when you come in, uh, you know, a few things you can do to, to piggyback over what you're saying is, is just simply manage your fatigue, understand coming in, there's going to be a lot. Also, come in, you touched on this earlier, pick, find, talk to people that have been there and figure out what you need to focus on. Because when you come in, they're going to give you all, traditionally, at least in my experience, they give you all your manuals, all your books, all at once. And you're looking at this stack of manuals. You know, you got uh, your FCOM 1, your FCOM 2, your FOM, your AIM, you know, you got all these different things and you're going, there's no way I'm going to be able to read all this and know all this information. You have to condense it down. The biggest issue I see with people who are not successful is not in the systems portion and it's not in the initial training portion, the company portion, if we will, the, uh, the company regulations or the systems. That stuff we pretty much have down. It's when they get into the actual FTD, which is a flight training device, which is basically like a way, a, a how am I trying to say this? A not technologically advanced sim. It's, it's a dumbed down sim, basically. Uh, it doesn't have a big, but it does all the same things. So when they get in the FTD to learn their flows, their call outs, all those kinds of things, and then when they get in the sim, and they're just simply behind because they've been trying to absorb so much information that they maybe haven't focused on what they need. And what I mean by that is learn your flows, learn your callouts, learn your actions, learn all of those things to the point that they are. Uh, you can walk down the hallway and somebody can say V1 cut and you can walk through the entire profile without even having to think about it. Because once you get into the sim, Everything else is going to get stacked on top of that. So if you're trying to think, what is my call out versus what is going on? You end up out of, um, you end up behind the airplane. And I know that's a very broad stroke on it. Um, I don't know if that confuses people more than anything else, but more or less, just figure out what you need to study, stay in front of it, but make sure you're focusing on the right elements of the curriculum and not getting bogged down with nuances or things that you don't need because there's so much information out there um, when you come in. You know, Justin, that that's some great advice. I, I think that that's a broad stroke, but it's awesome. I mean, just in general. But uh, uh, but anyway, getting to the point about the glass. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is I know we're kind of running long on the show is I would love to do an episode of just setting yourself up for success in training at an airline. Maybe we could do just a whole show on that. 
I would love to have you yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> no, we absolutely. Because that's something, like I said, I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because I could talk for half an hour just about that because I think there's, I just, I've taught at the 90, I've taught at the very entry level flight school 141 all the way through part 91, 135, 121. And I've learned a lot and watched a multitude of different skill levels, backgrounds, and everything else of students coming in. And I've been able to, I love it because I've been able to see everybody and where they struggled. But what's funny is no matter what your background is, no matter what you're doing, most people have the same issues. They struggle in the same four or five different areas. They just don't realize it. So, um, yeah, I would absolutely love to do that. The glass, the only thing I'll touch, I did want to touch on that um, really quick. The glass, just get, find a flight simulator on your computer that has a glass cockpit, a PFD, um, EHSI, all those kinds of things. Put it up there. And even if you don't necessarily know how to fly or whatever, just fly the airplane, even if it's just buzzing around the pattern straight and level, so that your eyes start adjusting to how to scan those instruments and how to look at that different instrumentation, especially if you're coming off a six-pack. But nowadays with the flight sims we can put on our computers, that glass, just getting that eye orientation to it, can can prove invaluable when you sit down in, for the first time in the jet. That is some awesome advice. And, uh, you know, you've heard me say on the show a lot of times that getting ready for your airline training, just sit in a simulator, a very simple one, but have it glass. And n- moving your eyes to along the glass is different than scanning those instruments that are you know steam gauges or you know they it's just such a different different experience and i love that advice to actually get in there and practice it there are so many simulators out there that are so inexpensive if you're listening and you're in a collegiate environment a lot of times that's free the simulators are free if it's sitting there not doing anything jump on it and start practicing. You want to know how to do an arcing glass? Just go ahead and try it. But I, I think that's some terrific advice. As a matter of fact, uh, and I'm, I'm glad Justin has agreed to come back and we'll, we'll go over setting yourself up for success and have some different steps that you should go through and things to be ready for for your training because we want to make sure you're successful the next time you get through flight training. So, Justin, we just set it up for the next episode and I really appreciate your coming here. And if you need to ask him questions, of course, feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. But uh, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, say as far as any way that they might be able to reach you or is that the best way to do it? Uh, no, yeah, they can reach me that way. Uh, you also have my email. My uh, I have a LinkedIn account as well. You can look me up on there. My emails are pretty easy. Okay. Uh, the easiest way to reach me is via email. I believe you have that. So, yeah, feel free to reach out to me. Um, the email that I believe you have is my financial uh, business email, but that email, feel free to email questions that I'm happy to talk aviation. As Carl will tell you, once I start talking aviation, it's hard to get <laughs> to stop. So I don't mind any any plethora of questions. It's fine with me, absolutely. Austin, Justin Ashwood, it has been terrific having you back again, and it's been great having you on as a co-host here. We uh, A lot of good information from an airline flight instructor. Uh, sometimes I envy him for what he does. Uh, I actually get to do some of that, but on the collegiate level, a little bit different. But, uh, you know, I'm dealing with people that are just learning how to land, and that's a lot of fun, has its own challenges. Uh, and it's it's just it's just so happy and, and a wonderful environment to see people, especially when it clicks and they accomplish something. 
something and something new, a new airplane, whether it's flying a new jet, working for a major, or just soloing an aircraft their first time or going out and getting their instrument rating. It's just awesome to see that. Um, but before I go, one of the things I want to you to know is that all this information is on the show notes and on the website. Go to aviationcareerspodcast.com. You can click on that. We talked. I talked a little bit about uh, some things that we have, like links and stuff like that. At the bottom, I have a link to an article in Kiplinger, which talks a lot about retirement. Some of the retirement mistakes you re- will regret forever. Really cool article, so I'd like you to read that. And uh, for those folks starting out, you know, start saving, etc., there's a lot of things in there about that. It does talk a little bit about why you really shouldn't pull money out of your retirement. I thought that was kind of a good, good point there. Another thing, too... I'd like you to do is check out the the picture that's at the top of uh, this blog post, and uh, it's actually done by Dylan, who was a student at Polk State College Aerospace, and beautiful sunset shot between a, behind a Piper Cadet. It's actually it's just gorgeous. I asked him if I could use it for this, and one of the other reasons I want to use that picture is a shout out to Dylan. Congratulations! He just started his training with an airline, and he's uh, flying a jet in an airline right now uh, after just starting a few years back with uh, not much experience. So it's a really really proud of him uh, coming from Polk State College. Uh, and also another shout out to Polk State College as being the uh, number two most affordable college aerospace program in the United States online. It was just, that's such a neat thing. I'll have a link to that too. Big shout out to Eric Crump. Eric's going to come on, so I don't want to talk too much about it, but check it out. I'm going to have a link to that at the bottom of the show notes. Well, folks, I tell you, we, there's a lot of information you got here. Went, went a little bit long, but that's cool. Uh, we, we are going to have Justin back on to talk about uh, setting yourself up for success in training in an airline. Don't forget that there's a lot of different things that you need to do to get ready for your career, fatigue, how to manage it, learning, how to get yourself ready for that training, and also how to prepare yourself for the airline world. And what I want you to do today is do something now today to move forward in your career. And one of those things that you can do is start getting ready for the glass if you haven't had it, getting out there, reading books on something new. Go out there and get the Turbine Pilot's Guide as far as how to fly in a jet aircraft if you think that's going to be soon in your future. But get prepared today. But do something now. Do something today to move forward in your career. And send us your questions at feedback at aviationcareerspodcast.com. We'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying. You have been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although host or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler. All rights reserved.